Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. If you haven't quite finished your lunch, please continue. Uh, I'd like to um, tell you what next week's topic is going to be. Now, the title is, What Did Daniel Smith and the Wild Rose Floor Cro- Crossers Forget? Sounds intriguing. The speaker will be Lisa Lambert. Most of us know who that is. Upcoming sessions are listed on the SACPA website, www.sacpa.ca. So this session and past sessions can be heard on audio podcast on that website. Also on the, on that website there there is a survey comment blog available. Also there is a suggestion box just out here in, in the lobby for ideas and comments. Okay, uh, today's topic is Arctic War or Arctic Peace, and our speaker is um, Dr. Michael Byers. We're o- just about open for question period now. Um, I would ask questioners to please use the microphone over here by the wall. Uh, no questions from the floor, please, because, again, uh, these are being recorded. When asking a question, please state your name, keep your comments brief, limit yourself to one or two topical questions, and please return to your seat after your question. Okay, we're now open. I'd like to invite Michael back to the podium. Thank you very much for your talk, Michael. Um, But you didn't uh, elaborate as far as to talk about the Lomonsov Ridge and the Danish um, florid uh, intervention internationally. I wondered if you would like to comment on that. Uh, I didn't talk about it because I knew you would ask me, Eric. Uh, and can I, uh, just before I answer that question, just uh, thank the, the staff here for a really wonderful meal. Uh, you'd, if you'd pass that on to your colleagues in the kitchen as well, be grateful. Um, yes, uh, the, uh, the law of the sea is, uh, is perhaps the most technical area of, of international law. Um, and... Uh, some of the, the provisions that are most important today um, were uh, were drafted by by Canadians and, and Russians, Soviets, um, during the late 70s and early 1980s. And one of the provisions that um, they drafted uh, is Article 76 on extended continental shelves. Um, and 
in some places around the world, the, the continental shelf, the, the prolongation of, of, of the landmass extends more than 200 nautical miles from shore. The, the first 200 nautical miles are automatically part of the coastal state, the, the seabed. But, but the question is, what happens beyond 200 nautical miles? And this provision says that if you can establish scientifically that the shelf continues beyond 200 nautical miles and that it's connected, it's part of your continental margin, that, that you have exclusive jurisdiction over it. This provision um, negotiated uh, uh, centrally by, by Canada and Russia and, and, and also the, the United States. Um, and it was very... Uh, it was very prescient that, that this would be important and, and, and useful, um, including in the Arctic, uh, because lo and behold, um, it seems that the continental shelves in the Arctic extend beyond 200 nautical miles, particularly along this ridge that traverses the, the Arctic Ocean called the, the Lomonosov Ridge after the great Russian scientist. And... Uh, um, and, and as part of this, this process, um, Canada, Denmark, and Russia have been collecting scientific data concerning the, the underwater uh, topography, it's called bathymetry, and also the, the geology of the ocean floor to, to establish this, this prolongation of their coastline. Um, and everything has been working relatively well. Um, uh, the, the three countries have been cooperating and communicating um, Stephen Harper threw a little bit of a spanner in the works uh, just over a year ago um, by, uh, by essentially holding back Canada's submission, saying that he wanted Canada scientists to claim the North Pole, e even though it, it can't be ours for, for another reason of international law. Uh, the, uh, the Danes um, uh, responded to, to, to Canada by saying, well, if, uh, if you're going to play games like that, we're just going to file a submission that has all the science and just looks at the science and has no consideration of where Canada's rights might be. And they did that in, in December, and, and, and lo and behold, their view of the science takes their continental shelf all the way across to, to Russia, the whole Lomonosov Ridge, up to the, the Russian 200 nautical mile limit. And I was upset with my Danish colleagues for doing this because this was uh, – Although scientifically uh, valid, or at least uh, plausible scientifically, it was uh, um, it was like waving a, a red flag at at, at Mr. Putin uh, in, in these difficult times, and I was worried that Mr. Putin would respond angrily to this. And I was wrong. The Russian Foreign Ministry, within a day or so, issued a press release saying that uh, we've known for a long time that Denmark was going to do this. This is all about science. We have a different view of the science. We have lots of scientific data, and uh, we will be filing our own submissions soon. Uh, and it will be just as extensive as the Danish one. In other words, it's going to go all the way across to the Danish 200-mile limit. Um, and, and that's actually okay. I mean, it's not optimal. I would have liked to have seen them come up with some negotiated boundaries now rather than in, in 10 or 20 years' time, which is the timeline that we're now on. But the point here is that all the countries are still accepting that it is this Article 76 of the Convention on the Law of the Sea. It is the science concerning bathymetry and, and uh, geology. Um, and there's no deviation from that. Um, so, so the good news is that uh, 
that the processes uh, remain in place. Uh, it's just that the resolution has been deferred for, for a decade or, or two. Good news story. Uh, other questions? Hi, Michael. My name is Frances Schultz, and I just want to thank you for the presentation that you've given because I'm always amazed at the scope of your understanding of the law and the history of these various issues. Um, what I would like to ask, you mentioned the Russian scientist who was able to speak very freely about the results of the research on climate change. Um, now, do the Russian people get this message, or is it only other scientists who hear this message? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, the answer would be that uh, most Russians would not get that message because most Russians get their news from television, and Russian television is fairly simplistic and very nationalistic and very centered on the personality of the president. Uh, so no, they wouldn't get that message. Um, Russians who are um, in large urban centers and who have access to the internet and who are interested in this would be able to access the message because these Russian scientists publish in the scientific literature, including the global literature. Right? They're, they're not restrained from, from publishing. Their science is available internationally and, and, and on the Internet. So, so there's no attempt to control it at that level. Mind you, this is only a very small percentage of the population that, that might pursue that. The other thing that you need to remember about, uh, about Russia is that uh, uh, Russia, just because of its sheer geographic size, is largely a, uh, a rural country, and the Internet is not readily accessible in, in, in most of the, the provinces. Um, so there's a difference between Moscow and Novosibirsk uh, and uh, most of the, the rest of the country. Television is dominant, and television is, is definitely skewed. But we're seeing a, you know, a similar phenomena in, in North America where some people get most of their news from television, and Facebook is all just about silliness and social media. And pictures of cats. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, Maria Fitzpatrick, and I also thank you very much for a fantastic presentation, and I would encourage the executive to invite you back again because I think there's more you can share. Uh, my question to you is, you mentioned the Arctic waters um, pollu or, yeah, uh, pollution Pre uh, prevention act. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I didn't know there was one. Uh, so a year or so ago, the Canadian government uh, passed an act which reduced the number of uh, rivers and streams that are protected. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me what impact that's going to have on the other act to prevent pollution? <laughs> well, thank you um, for that. Uh, you're right, uh, the Harper government has... Uh, stripped out most of Canada's environmental protections and gutted the Navigable Waters Act and done a lot of other really horrendous things um, uh, on the environmental um, uh, side of, of things. Uh, 
In the Arctic, however, uh, with regards to the Arctic Waters Pollution Prevention Act, the government seems to understand that this is actually something that supports Canadian sovereignty. Mr. Harper doesn't want to be seen as undermining Canadian Arctic sovereignty, and so um, they've not only uh, uh, preserved the, uh, the act, they've actually extended its application um, from uh, 100 nautical miles from shore out to 200 nautical miles from shore which is what they're allowed to do under international law today. Um, so um, uh, uh, with regards to your specific question, uh, they, they, they haven't tampered um, with, uh, with those uh, protections. Um, where they have been negligent um, has been in terms of, uh, of uh, investing in uh, the uh, kind of, of infrastructure and services uh, that you would want to have accompany the increased shipping activity in the Arctic. Uh, we have almost no speed up, spill, spill cleanup capacity in the Arctic, um, and yet we have increasingly large ships traveling through with, with some frequency, um, and, uh, and we would not be able to do a single thing if, if a spill were, were to occur. Uh, and I'm not talking about oil tankers. I'm talking about uh, increasingly cargo ships. But, but, of course, a single large cargo ship will have upwards of a million liters of fuel oil on board. Um, so you can still get serious spills. There's, there's no effort to invest in, in spill cleanup capacity to increase the Coast Guard presence uh, to um, actually... Uh, um, you know, enforce uh, some of the uh, the rules that we have. Uh, to give you another example, there's a, a, a provision in the Arctic Waters Pollution Prevention Act concerning uh, uh, requirements for insurance coverage in the Canadian Arctic. No government since 1970, when the Act was adopted, no government has actually adopted regulations to implement that provision on insurance. So. So no, step words, no steps backwards, but, but not a whole, whole lot of steps forwards uh, on this front. Mary Shillington, thank you, Michael, for your uh, information and your humor as well and the stories. I love stories. Uh, I'm a retired social worker, so, of course, one of the stories that I was interested in was the business of the Arctic peoples. And there's so many, of course, you said, because of the Arctic uh, shoreline. Uh, that they were receiving uh, international recognition and so on and were on the front row when the negotiations were going on. But the locally or within the, commun uh, within the country, they weren't, didn't have much power. I'm wondering uh, how Canada and our beloved Harper has uh, uh, handled the Arctic people. I have my suspicions, being a non Harper supporter, uh, that it would be not even as good as what Putin has done. So could you expand on that, please? The, in, the indigenous people of Russia are, in fact, worse off than the indigenous people of Canada, um, which gives you an idea of just how bad it is. Um, and, uh, if, for instance, they have no Aboriginal rights with regards to resource development. You know, the the Chilcotwin decision of the Supreme Court of Canada would be impossible in, in Russia. Um, this is the case that Chief Roger William took, um, where uh, he succeeded after 20 years of litigation of getting a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada that said that you know, Aboriginal consent is, in fact, required 
for resource developments on on traditional lands. Um, uh, something that Enbridge might have you know thought um, was a, a, a consideration when they started to plan their Northern Gateway pipeline because that pipeline's now dead, right? I mean, the Supreme Court of Canada stopped that. Roger Williams stopped that. Um, that's, that sort of development is, is, is impossible in Russia, which does not have a, a rule of law, right? It does not, there's no semblance of democracy. There's no checks and balances. It's just not, not possible. And so indigenous peoples who are in the way of industrial development just get pushed aside. Um, the, the international dimension um, does help them to, to some degree. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple of years ago, the uh, Russian uh, Ministry of Justice uh, stripped um, uh, domestic certification from a, a group called the Russian Association of Indigenous Peoples of the North, uh, Rayepon, which was the, the group that was represented at the Arctic Council. Rayepon was the, the permanent participant, the, the indigenous participant at the Arctic Council negotiating table from Russia. Russian Ministry of Justice stripped their status, said you can't go, you can't participate in the Arctic Council. Um, the Russian foreign ministry was furious because this you know, um, was impeding their diplomacy um, in terms of trying to get more important stuff done at the Arctic Council. And in a truly remarkable move, the, the Russian ambassador to the Arctic Council, a man named Anton Vasilyev, voted for the declaration that condemned the actions of his own government's Ministry of Justice. Okay? But, but this isn't because they care about their indigenous peoples. This is because they've got bigger things at stake, right? You treat your indigenous peoples you know, not too badly because you don't want the black mark against your name when you're trying to get... Uh, I don't know, investments from Western oil companies or you're trying to get uh, cooperation on search and rescue, um, that, that there are more important things and, and, and you know, the, the small bad stuff you do at home can, can drag you down. All this to say is I don't think Stephen Harper understands that, all right? that, that Stephen Harper doesn't understand uh, that reputational issues can get in the way of, of the important issues of the day. So if we're not treating our indigenous peoples properly, right, if we're refusing to hold a public inquiry into the missing and murdered Aboriginal women of this country, that other countries are seeing this and going, oh, that's not nice, right? And they're not feeling the kind of warmth towards us in international negotiations. I mean, think about you're trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with Europe, right, which cares about human rights, and they're looking at this behavior of yours at, at home. It's a concept of, of what's called soft power, as opposed to hard power, hard military and economic power. Soft power is reputational. It's the ability to persuade others to do what you want without forcing them to do what you want. It's the currency of international relations in the 21st century. Harper doesn't get that. Ironically, the Putin government does. Right? They're very sophisticated. I mean, yes, they, they play their domestic politics. They've got their state propaganda. They're... they're, they're you know, doing things that are illegal, like annexing Crimea, but at the same time, they, you know, they arrest Greenpeace protesters and then they deport them, right? Instead of prosecuting them at home because of reputation, right? They arrest Pussy Riot and then they release them 
because of international reputation. They're, they're attuned to this to some degree. They're not uh, an unsophisticated, tone-deaf regime. They're not, they're not North Korea. They have a large, highly sophisticated foreign ministry with superb diplomats. And just like Putin tolerates world-class scientists in his government, he wants those world-class diplomats working for him. It's a difference. Um, and again, I, I, I despise Vladimir Putin in the way he treats some of his opponents. Right? I mean, he is a thug. He's worse than Stephen Harper. But in some respects... In some respects, he's much more sophisticated than the Canadian Prime Minister. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks very much for coming, <coughs> Michael. Uh, and you're welcome anytime you want to come and practice up your snow shoveling skills. Uh, I'm sure your parents uh, like that idea as well. Uh, my question is uh, related to... Uh, in the next few years, we may see uh, a fair amount of traffic going through the Northwest Passage and international shipping and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, do you have any sense of what uh, that will look like? Uh, who is going to be responsible for uh, mishaps? Who is going to police that? Uh, is 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 it? It's not international waters they're going through. So, how does how is Canada going to deal with that uh, pressure? Yeah, uh, Canada's position is that the Northwest Passage um, is Canadian internal waters. So, not territorial waters. Internal waters, like the Old Man River. Okay, subject to full jurisdiction, all of Canada's laws. Uh, the Russians take the exact same view with regards to their Arctic Straits, say that they're Russian internal waters. And our common opponent for both Canada and, and Russia legally on this issue is the United States, which insists that these are so-called international straits, open uh, access to, to ships from, from any country without uh, uh, much in, in, in the way of, of, of constraint. Um, now, the, the good news is that... Um, that for uh, three decades now, um, every ship that sailed through the Northwest Passage has uh, sought and received Canadian government permission. Um, and the simple explanation for why is that they want our help if they have an accident. They want search and rescue. They want our um, information concerning ice conditions, weather conditions, and we provide those. Uh, so, so the situation right now is is, is pretty good. We we have uh, you know three decades of compliance um, with uh, with our permission in terms of, of, of ships asking whether they can come. In fact, to take this to to, to the the ultimate uh, extreme, um, a a ship was involved in the Franklin search expedition uh, this past summer um, that uh, was. Uh, reported in the media uh, as having the name uh, One Ocean Explorer. This is an uh, Arctic uh, science and cruise ship that is chartered by a, a company uh, in Whistler, B.C. called One Ocean for, for Arctic cruises. Um, and it was used to, to house uh, uh, some of the dignitaries and donors, uh, 
Jim Basile from uh, BlackBerry was on board, and uh, the Canadian Geographic Society people were all on board, the One Ocean Explorer. But in fact, the One Ocean Explorer is named the academic uh, Sergei Vavilov. Uh, and is owned by the Russian Academy of Sciences and therefore the Russian government. Um, but it was a commercial arrangement, and the ship had the permission of the Canadian government, and uh, there was no problem whatsoever. Although, curiously, the Canadian government didn't want anyone to know that a Russian government-owned ship was central to the discovery of the HMS Erebus. In fact, they so desperately didn't want anyone to know that Mr. Harper did not go to the search location. Right? He spent a week in the Arctic. He did not go to the search location because, awkwardly, he would have had to go on the Russian ship in order to have lunch or dinner <laughs> because that's where the cafeteria was for the entire search mission. Um, but anyway, to, to get to the, the, the point of your question, uh, what about the future? The uh, uh, future is not uh, as, as rosy as, as the recent past in that the traffic is increasing, and, uh, and, and at some point we're likely to, to face a ship that will not ask permission, uh, perhaps because we would deny permission. Let's say it was a single-hulled oil tanker, right? Or, or um, no, who knows, maybe a North Korean government vessel or you know, someone deciding they didn't want to ask permission, in which case we would almost certainly interdict that vessel and have a, an international legal dispute on our hands. And so I've been arguing for some years now that we actually need to sit down with the United States and have an adult conversation about the dispute. Right? And we have opposing positions. And we've had opposing positions for four decades now. And the last time we sat down to have a serious discussion was when Ronald Reagan was president and Brian Mulroney was prime minister. And we got something significant out of that, something called the Arctic Cooperation Agreement, where we took the issue of that time, which was U.S. Coast Guard icebreakers, off of the table and said that, 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 that they will always ask permission and we will always give it. And were it not for climate change, that would have done it, but climate change is happening, and someone else now needs to sit down with the American president and come up with a new deal. And Mr. Harper's been there for eight, nine years, uh, says he cares about Arctic sovereignty, uh, seeks to have a good relationship with the United States, but he can't even bring himself to sit down and have that adult conversation. And this will cause problems in the future, probably for another prime minister. Thank you. Terry Shellington. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for your presentation and the wealth of information. <clears throat> a, a, a quick observation and a question. The observation is that I hear you saying that in some ways Putin is more sophisticated about his uh, PR job, uh, but I see the whole Russian action in uh, the Ukraine as being a massive black eye for the Russians and, uh, and, a, and, a, um, and a contradiction of that uh, sophistication in, in PR. That's the observation. You might want to respond to it. But the question is around tectonic plates and the comment made at our table. Are they moving and does that affect the um, issue of sovereignty uh, underwater? Uh, on the second question, they're moving extremely slowly, as they always have. Um, and, uh, and so the tectonic plate movement is measured in millions of years. Climate change is usually measured in thousands of years historically. Uh, it's now measured in human years, which is where the problem comes in. Uh, 
and uh, and diplomacy is 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 certainly uh, something that's dealt with on on relatively short timelines, given that the modern legal system dates back to the Treaty of Westphalia, which, historically speaking, was just yesterday. Um, so so no, there the the. The, the, the one interesting question, though, and, and I'm glad you asked that, uh, that, that is related to, to this, concerns sea level rise, because uh, we are seeing a significant uh, sea level rise uh, at the moment. Uh, it's presently around three meters per year, which might not sound like a lot. Sorry, three, milli- three millimeters per year. <laughs> three millimeters per year, which, which, which might not sound like a lot, but three millimeters uh, per year is, uh, is three centimeters over a decade and 30 centimeters over a century, and it's accelerating, so it's going to be far more than that. I'm currently involved in a big interdisciplinary um, grant proposal concerning uh, the impacts of the melting of the Greenland ice cap. And one of the potential impacts, once that ice cap starts to really go quickly and we see very significant two, three, five-meter sea level rises, is that it's going to actually change coastlines, Right? And, and if coastlines are changing, then maritime boundaries might have to change. So we might actually end up with a whole new range of sovereignty disputes all around the planet as maritime boundaries become contested because the coastlines on which they're based have been altered by rising sea levels. Um, on the issue of, uh, of, uh, of, of where Ukraine fits in terms of uh, media uh, sophistication, I think it, it depends on, on what you see as, as Putin's audience. Putin's audience is domestic. Then the annexation of Crimea was a masterstroke. He had 90% approval ratings, 90% approval ratings after the annexation of Crimea. We might not like that, okay? Imagine what Stephen Harper would do with a 90% approval rating, <laughs> right? I mean, th- think, of, think of, of, of Margaret Thatcher going to war over the Falklands, Right? which ensured her continued power in the United Kingdom. Sometimes people do things internationally that are expensive, that, that might not make sense. Uh, in Thatcher's case, case, you know, the law was on her side, but still, uh, you know, it, it really wasn't a logical decision unless you thought about the domestic political angle. The other thing to remember, and, and Putin will understand this uh, better than most people, is that uh, memories are short in, in contemporary international politics. Uh, how many people here uh, remember that big crisis over the Russian invasion of Georgia? Right? Yeah? Yeah. I mean, you remember it, but not a whole lot of people. Relations got back fairly quickly after that. Russia was admitted to the World Trade Organization just three years ago with the approval of Canada and the United States and the European Union. Or, or think about that that huge bust-up that we had diplomatically over um, the... Uh, invasion of Kuwait, right? In 2003, the international order put itself back together uh, fairly quickly after that. Um, Putin is, is, is gambling that his, his legal and diplomatic position on, on Crimea is plausible enough, i.e. it used to be part of the Soviet Union, and that the stakes are not so great that this is going to pose a long-term problem for relations with the West. He thinks this will blow over. And I think he's right. I think that, that in 10 or 20 years we'll look at, at, at Crimea and we'll think, well, you know, technically it's not part of Russia, but it's part of the de facto situation today. The same thing that we think about, the same way that we think about Tibet and China, right? 
I mean, we might not like it. It's technically not part of China in our view, but that doesn't impede our government from, you know, in entering into a foreign investment act with treaty with with China or negotiating free trade or doing a whole lot of business. It's ancient history. Yeah, okay. You know, they, they conquered a territory illegally. Um, next. Last yes. question. Thank you. My name is James Moore. I uh, appreciate you uh, adding nuance and context to a very short presentation, Michael. But um, I have a preamble and then a question. The There are facts in Putin's favor, like, for example, uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev being promised to when he withdrew the 24 divisions from East Germany that NATO would not move one inch closer to Russia. Um, the preamble to your speech, which I read on the Internet, talked about trusting Russia. I just want to ask you another question, though. Uh, what's your opinion on trusting the United States of America? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, on Russia, let me just add one thing. Um, between 2008 and 2011, Canada had a foreign minister named Lawrence Cannon who I got to know um, because he actually wanted expert advice that, that, that came from people who, who shared um, political opinions with, with his opponents. Uh, he wasn't just interested in having yes-men at his table. Um, and uh, one of the good things about Lawrence Cannon was that he recognized the importance of good relations with Russia. So Stephen Harper's foreign minister and made a huge investment of time and effort in becoming friends with the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Um, and and I, I asked Mr. Cannon about this. I mean, why are you putting so much time into this? And he said, well, Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council. Russia is the single largest source of energy for Europe. Russia is the second largest nuclear-armed country on Earth. This matters. I need to know the Russian foreign minister. So if things go sideways, I can steer things back. And, and that wasn't you know, unusual for Mr. Cannon because every single one of his predecessors back until the beginning of Canadian foreign policy would have taken the exact same view. Right? You don't have to like that country, but you have to have good relations with the people who run it. Because that's how you avoid things getting worse. John Baird doesn't get this. Okay, John Baird is is the most undiplomatic member of Parliament, let alone the most undiplomatic foreign minister in the world. I mean, this guy is a bull in the china shop. He 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 sees he sees foreign policy simply as a way of playing to diasporas here in Canada in electoral terms and nothing else. Stephen Harper, unfortunately, is the same way. I mean, Lawrence Cannon was actually, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, an adult at that cabinet table, recognizing that foreign policy was, was more important than just domestic politics. Um, so that's not actually an anti-Harper government statement. That <laughs> I just gave a huge compliment to a former Harper cabinet minister. Um, and, and I would say the same thing about the way that Jim Prentice handled himself when he was at that same cabinet table in Ottawa. Uh, 
Um, on the United States, um, I could talk for another hour about the United States. I had the privilege of living there for, for five years. Uh, and I went to live there for five years because I wanted to try to understand that, that country at least a, a bit better. Um, and obviously the United States um, is a very complex uh, polity, very, very different uh, from Canada, uh, and distorted in some profound ways, for instance, by the absence of limits on on uh, uh, campaign donations. Um, but, but I will say that uh, within the considerable constraints of his office, the extraordinarily significant constraints of his office, um, Barack Obama has done okay. okay? Um, it, 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 it's impossible for Canadians or, 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 or British people to understand how you could be president of the most powerful country on earth and not actually be all-powerful. The U.S. president is far from all powerful. He's much less powerful in his country than Stephen Harper is in this country or even David Cameron uh, in the U.K. with a, a coalition government. And we essentially elect dictators for four or five years. Uh, the, the U.S. president has to work within checks and balances that are very, very powerful. Uh, and not just the formal constitutional checks and balances, but other ones like, for instance, the, the military. I mean, Bob Woodward's first book uh, on Obama called Obama's Wars tells about how the four chiefs of staff, joint chiefs of staff, plus the defense secretary came into a meeting with Obama and said, unless you approve the surge in Afghanistan, all five of us are collectively going to resign. Right? He had no choice. Politically. Early in his first term. Right? He had to approve the surge in Afghanistan because of this check and balance, which was the very powerful U.S. military. Um, so within those kinds of constraints, I think he's done pretty well. I, I abhor some of his actions. The, the, the use of drones for targeted killings I, I think is illegal and immoral. Um, but he delivered significantly on health care for the most disadvantaged Americans, and he is now doing some serious things on climate change. And I think that, that, that when I look back at the end of my career and say what was the most significant issue uh, of the last – 50 years, it will be climate change. And um, Obama securing an agreement with China um, as a prelude to the Paris conference uh, on climate change later this year is a really big deal. And Barack Obama, in his inaugural speech for his second term, speaking from the heart about climate change and looking at his two daughters was a signal that this is his legacy issue. And anyone who thinks that, that Keystone XL has a hope in hell during the Obama presidency did not see that inaugural speech. I mean, it was over from that point onwards. Um, I, I don't know um, whether he'll be remembered as a great president. I doubt that, that he will be as good a president um, as Al Gore or John Kerry would have been, and perhaps as good a president as Hillary Clinton will be. Um, but um, I'm not... I'm not, I, 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 I'm not one of those people who is going to criticize Barack Obama just because he's the leader of the country that so consistently and systematically dominates my own. Because they do, right? Um, and yet at the same time, I have to applaud the fact that, that he is in some respects progressive and has tried in some areas to do the right thing.
Thank you. I guess that's a good note to end on. Thank you very much, Michael.